I'm Diane Lee, and this is Never Forget What They Did. On March 12, 2020, the WHO declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. In July 2020, the Australian government actively prevented its citizens and permanent residents returning home from overseas or interstate. When we got back, they locked us up and made us pay. These are our stories because we must never forget what they did. Kerry had been working in Singapore since 2017, her first experience as an expat. By 2020, she was feeling homesick and lonely, so she returned to Melbourne for six weeks in February, just before the pandemic was declared by the WHO. Returning to Singapore in July because she still had work commitments, Kerry tried to return to Australia in December to see her ill father. Sadly, he passed away in January 2021. Still reeling from the death of her father, she received news in April that her ex-husband had passed away. With the Singapore project transitioning back to Australia, the soonest Kerry could return to Melbourne was May. While that flight wasn't cancelled, she was forced into the sanctioned torture that was hotel quarantine. This is Kerry's story. Um, I'm a Melbourne girl, so born and raised in in Melbourne, so I I still live here. In 2017, I took a job over in Singapore, so the that I was working for here started up a project that was supposed to go for about two years. It ended up going for about four and a half. Um, They wanted to base the project out of Singapore. So, um, you know, I got myself together and sort of moved over there. It was the first time I'd, you know, lived overseas. First time I'd worked overseas. (laughs) You know, I kept my house here, thank goodness. But, yeah, it was still a big deal to sort of, you know, ship my belongings over there and, you know, digitise my life so that I could work from over there. And I think there was no appreciation of what it actually means, like, to be an expat in another country um, and then perhaps be needing to get home. You know, I had such, I wasn't in this, these circumstances, but, you know, I heard terrible stories of, you know, people's work finished in Singapore. They sort of closed up the lease on, on their apartment, dragged the kids out of school, closed bank accounts, credit cards, you know, closed up their life there, thinking that they'd booked a flight home only to have the airlines bump them off the flight. And then, then what, you know, no appreciation for people's actual circumstances. What politicians and public servants failed to realise, or maybe they did and they didn't care, is that it wasn't as easy as packing everything up, including personal effects, kids and pets, and getting on a flight. The uncertainty of it all made it a precarious exercise. What happened if that flight was cancelled? What's a family to do with no money and nowhere to live? Camp in the airport? you were with family or alone in Singapore? Um, I was alone. So I'm single, separated for a long time. So I'm actually kind of the inverse of everyone else. Like I, um, come January 2020, I was very uncomfortable in Singapore. We were still working, the project was still well underway. 
but um, you know, I was I felt very homesick, very lonely, um, couldn't concentrate, and asked my um, project director, could I go and work for Melbourne for three months? Very ill at ease in Singapore, and she sort of said, well you can't go for three months or have everybody wanting to work from their home country for three months. So, you know, how about you wait until the end of February, she said, we'll get to this stage of the project. And then the end of February, you can go not for three months, but you can go for six weeks. So I flew into Melbourne for six weeks at the end of February. So just before everything was going to hell. <laughs> so, so my six weeks sort of came and went. There were no flights that I could get on back. My, my flight back was cancelled and there weren't more. So I was left in a situation where I was stuck in Melbourne. All my stuff was, I mean, I still had a, you know, enough in the house to live with. Um, but, you know, I had all my belongings in an apartment. I was still paying rent there. I was the director of a Singaporean-based company that I'd set up to work through and I was outside of the country working, which is like it's forbidden <laughs> to do that. So it was, a, you know, and you can't leave an unattended apartment in Singapore for very long before, you know, anti-humidity things dry up and, you know, mould starts coming everywhere. I, I then became concerned about how was I going to get back, you know. So there was there were no flights at this stage and I was just kind of working and just monitoring that and trying to go about a normal life here and some flights like I'd also wanted to see my parents you know when I was here and um, almost as soon as I arrived like they started cancelling the flights to Marimbilla they live at Chura Beach just out of Marimbilla so I couldn't even really get to see them I'd hired a car but you know you don't have insurance to take it out of the state and whatever so I sort of said to my mum I don't think I can get there it's like oh it doesn't matter you know you're in the same country so you know it's all it's all good you know, don't worry about it. So, yeah, I didn't get to, to visit them in that trip. And then some flights opened up in July. Kerry found that re-entering Singapore during the pandemic was a civilised, organised, flexible affair. The government had a response plan and they stuck to it, unlike Australia, as she later found out. Singapore had a really decent arrangement. Australia could have learnt a lot from their arrangement. But you basically find a flight that works for you, don't book it, raise a request to the government to say, can I come in on such and such a flight on such and such a date? Within 12 to 24 hours, they'll tell you yes or no. And that if they say yes, like that's booked your place, like either quarantining at your apartment or quarantining a hotel, whatever the arrangement was for the country that you're coming from, like you can go ahead and book that. The space is guaranteed. Australia could have done with something like that. But anyway, <laughs> so they approved me to fly in and I was allowed to quarantine just at my apartment. By this stage, I'd actually closed the lease on my current apartment because I was worried about ever being able to get back there and put my goods into storage. Someone had helped me there with that. You know, I'd watch strangers pack up my, you know, my clothes and my underwear and whatever. It was just horrendous. <laughs> but did that. So I had to take out a new lease, sight unseen apartment there. But did that and then flew in, had arranged my goods to come out of storage so I sort of got to this apartment like amidst a bunch of <laughs> removal boxes like fine to my apartment for two weeks at least I was back yeah and how were you feeling about being back at that time so this is July 2020 correct yeah just kind of 
I guess like everyone, just a bit sort of washed out, you, you know, like it was the only, I needed to be there like because I was still working. So um, were you worried about the pandemic at that stage? Um, you know, not really, to be honest. Uh, I'd realised really early on in Melbourne, I think maybe I spent a week, you know, where we all sort of didn't really know what was going on. We were all a bit worried. But I realised I couldn't actually exist with that level of fear going on in my life. So I made a commitment to myself, like, okay, I'm just not going to live like that. It actually, I think, was much easier to be in Singapore because they approached it quite differently. Like, it is a police state, so, you know, they can do what they want. But whenever the Prime Minister would speak, he was very, very calm and very clear. And so right from the beginning, they would sort of say things like, you don't have to worry, like we've practised this since SARS, we've got a plan, you know, all we need to do is X, Y, Z, but, you know, we'll look after you. We've really trained for it, like it'll be, it'll all be okay. And so collectively the population kind of exhales and goes, oh, okay, well, I'm good with that. Like I can just go over my day-to-day life and I just have to do this and that and uh, they've, they've got my back. And they stuck to their plan. They'd get a few places and they did get a bad outbreak in the um, worker dormitories there um, that they use on construction and whatever, terrible conditions. So anyway, they did get some bad outbreaks in there. But, you know, they stuck with their plan and just quietly went about, you know, doing what they needed to do. Experiencing the pandemic in Asia was different. It was ordered and calm and the people trusted their government to look after them. Obviously, like just most Asian countries, like the people are generally very compliant. You know, they do just tend to do as they're told. But, you know, it keeps everything moving. And also, you were talking about a plan. I mean, Vietnam had dealt with SARS previously, so they knew what they needed to do. And I think that was the difference. So they're used to dealing with outbreaks that West, you know, haven't had the opportunity to deal with. So I think that was why there was that level of calm there as well. But they also, you know, even in Singapore, when they did get some cases, they didn't shit the bed and change the rules, you know. (laughs) They just carried on for a level of confidence. Whereas, yeah, you get some cases and suddenly the rules are changed. And, yeah, and despite the cases in Singapore, you know, they never had huge lockdowns like we did here. They called them circuit breakers. They would maybe um, shut certain things for, I think, two, three weeks, four weeks, maybe not even as long as four weeks. They definitely kept the economy going and they made jobs out of nowhere for people. People didn't have jobs anymore. Like when I flew back into the airport, I think there were more staff there doing all manner of jobs, (laughs) you know, more than passengers. Kerry saw out 2020 in Singapore. When her father became ill in December and she tried to find a flight home, she couldn't. Planes just weren't flying. Well, not for like another, into the next year after that. So I, towards the end of 2020, so around November, December, my my dad became quite ill. Um, I had, there were no flights home. I think I was able to book a business class flight into Perth, but that wasn't until, you know, sometime the following year. I had no idea how I was going to get from Perth to Marimbula either, but 
So at that point in time, July 2020, that's when the government put flight caps on international flights. That obviously impacted you when you decided to come home. Well, not not exactly, actually. Like I wasn't able to. Well, I guess in a way it did because there were no flights. And never mind the caps. Like if there's no flights, you can cap whatever you want. But I, I didn't quite understand the idea of caps when clearly the airlines weren't flying. Exactly. And it was so difficult to get out of your country anyway. The governments of the countries that we were in weren't flying planes in and out anyway. So they put in a, an obstacle that wasn't necessary. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, I I, I um I tried to um, book a flight home, and yeah, I, I had it booked, but unfortunately, my dad's passed away in the January fifteenth of January twenty twenty one. Uh, you know, I couldn't get home, so I you know it was just awful, not being able to support my mum. Had to attend the funeral just by a video link, <laughs> record a piece for the to be played at his funeral. It was just awful. <laughs> I mean, I had colleagues in 2017 who didn't go on the on the project because they had elderly parents and they were worried about them. You know, and I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm going. <laughs> I didn't expect that that would happen to me. It was just horrendous. Like I was, you know, there on my own, just working at home from my apartment and more alone than ever, sort of going through that grief. How do you process grief when you you have to, you can't be there to support your mum, as you said, and you, you can't be physically there? I mean, it's just such a horrendous thing to actually go through. Would have taken you a long time to kind of work through that, I would imagine. I think it took me a long time, actually, like, you know, until I was well and truly back, to be honest. I don't think I processed it at all. You know, I remember after his funeral, like, I lived across the road from this little park and there were some really lovely old trees there. And I used to always feel quite nurtured, like, sitting on there, like, underneath the canopy of the trees on their roots. And um, I went over there after his funeral and just cried. Like, I just needed to be on the ground. Asian countries, especially Singapore, like no one shows any emotion in public. So I was a bit of a sight, like crying under the tree. And some lovely guy in the apartment over the road, um, he'd been outside and saw me crying. He said, oh, you know, he came over and he stayed for about half an hour chatting to me. He was so worried that I was on my own and crying, which was really nice. Like just, you know, one expat supporting another was nice. Well, no one can do anything for you either. So I cancelled that flight back. I didn't fly. There was no there was no point. And then it's sort of my sort of a, a couple of months after that, my project was still going. I was still working for them, but they were wanting me to transition over to work out of their Australian arm, which I couldn't do before. So, you know, it was time to think about going home. You know, like we were saying at the beginning, there's a few things to wind up. You know, there's a process to close out the company that I've been working through and whatever. So I booked a flight um, for May into Melbourne then. So you booked that for the 14th of May and then set about closing out everything, the company, the apartment, my accounts and whatever. And then the middle of April, the 15th of um, April, my ex-husband's son has called me one night to say that his father's died unexpectedly. much as Kerry wanted, needed to be back in Australia, she had to stay in Singapore to tie up loose ends. Politicians and Australians said we'd had enough time to get home. 
How many of them had ever lived overseas and repatriated, let alone during a pandemic? You know, we were together for like 20 years. It was it was just, you know, we've been separated for a long time, but always stayed friends and stayed in contact and whatever. So I think just on top of everything else, like that one just broke me. Like I just, just completely broken. <laughs> like... Well, I just, I had to wait, you know, I had to, um, there's a process to go through to close the company and to, you have to be there to close out the bank account. Um, you can't do that remotely. So, so yeah, there was, again, like there's just nothing I could do. Um, so that's two deaths that you had to process that you physically couldn't be there to support the family members going through that process. And they were the two probably like, most influential biggest men in my entire life you know to lose them like three months apart was just horrendous um my my closest girlfriend I I think she was calling me every day I think she was so worried about me um she was on the phone to me every single day I she was just worried about how everything was was going and how I was surviving how did you survive? Because that would have just taken such a toll emotionally and mentally on you. Yeah, I think I, I, I just kept working and just doing the doing, you know, just make a list and, you know, I had things to do just to get myself out of Singapore and still, still was being paid to work. So, you know, you can bury yourself in that for, for quite a long time. And, you know, if some other small things happened, like just with sort of layers of trauma on trauma, I had a bad fall down some stairs and um, had to have a thing cut off my neck from wearing masks. And like, it was just, it was just a horrendous, (laughs) horrendous time. Yeah. So when did you get home eventually? And what did you have to do to get home? Well, I booked that flight for May and was just crossing my fingers that it wasn't going to get cancelled because they were still under that cap quota system. Um, But, you know, like every other expat, I closed everything out and just crossed my fingers that they wouldn't cancel. So they didn't bump me off that flight. So I flew in on the 14th of May uh, 2021. Yeah, flew into hotel quarantine. (laughs) Yeah, I'd had some I'd had some colleagues who had, you know, come in through hotel quarantine, one through Sydney, one through Perth. And you know, I'm single, I'm independent, I'm grown up, I'm fairly resilient and stoic. I thought, yeah, no problem. All good. I'll be able to manage that. I'm comfortable with my own company, like you know, I'll be fine. I'm not sure that every state was equal. I'm not sure every hotel was equal. And it was, I think, one of the most horrendous things I've ever been through, to be honest. I got <laughs> I got probably the, assigned the worst hotel um, possible. I got the holiday the holiday in at, at the airport. Hotels had been ground zero for various COVID outbreaks across Australia. Supposed to be a temporary measure only, the Australian government and states and territories refused to consider other options like self-isolation at home. So hotels stayed as quarantine facilities even though they were unsuitable. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether it was that one that they had the outbreak at 
or it was the one in the city. But mm. this one at the this one at Tullamarine was built in the 70s, is in like it's just disgusting, like is in dire need of a refurbishment and was probably no good for anything else. Like you wouldn't stay there. It was dreadful. And I, I don't think the other state um, outsourced their um, quarantine to the Department of Justice. So I realised when they boarded the plane that suddenly we were under Department of Justice and Community Safety. They were running the whole gig here. And I'm, I, I just didn't get that impression that that's what was going on in the other states that I, you know, that I'd heard stories from there. So these people, like, they deal with the prisons and juvenile detention and that's the only way they know how to deal with people, like, as if they're prisoners. And so that is how they dealt with us, you know. You could tell from the moment they boarded the plane. Like, it was just, I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be bad. I guess I've come in here already with a few layers of trauma. So I think looking back, like I probably did have a pretty decent case of PTSD like coming in. So after I finished crying on night one, it took them five and a half hours to get me from the plane into a room. Like it was on the airport, land still, five and a half hours. So like nothing drives me more mental than a stupid process. But anyway, but yeah, by day two, I'd read through all their their paperwork and I absolutely understood what were finable offences and what were not, what were the rules that they'd made up and made no sense. And I basically set about breaking all of them. (laughs) I was like the, I, I wasn't really a model prisoner at all. Locked up with no recourse and no agency, some of us, like Kerry, took control of our circumstances where we could. We were as non-compliant as we could get away with. Unplugged the phones from the room because I got sick of them calling me. You know, I had asked to be put on a don't call me, but they kept calling, so I left the phones unplugged. I stopped answering the door. I was refusing my rat tests that they wanted, you know, I think during the 14 days, like something like five or six rat tests. It was ridiculous. I, yeah, I realised I only needed to do the last one if I wanted to leave. I was refusing those, yeah, n- not picking up my food from outside, the stuff they called food. <laughs> just just not um, not checking in with the mental health nurses who have a, you know, duty of care to call you every day. <laughs> so at some point, the um, you know, I wasn't answering the door to anyone and um, the hotel manager the duty manager got me on my mobile phone she sent me something so I knew it was her calling I picked it up and she was really pissed with me <laughs> surprise surprise and um, I, you know she said I said well you know what's the problem she said well you're not answering the phone we can't reach you um, you're not answering the door you're not taking your rat tests I'm like yeah and I don't want to she said well you have to and I said well tell me which clause in all your paperwork says that I have to because that's not how I interpret your very careful wording of that clause so she couldn't answer and she was very unhappy she said well in case of an emergency we have to be able to call you and I said I doubt that you're going to call every single room you know if we all need to be evacuated you're going to use that wretched loudspeaker system announcing something she said look if you keep being difficult I'll have to send the police up send them up love send them on up I'll have a little chat to them (laughs) of course they never came they just had such dreadful processes there. Like I didn't eat for the first eight days. Well, you couldn't eat the food there. Like I'm, you know, I ate fairly healthfully, cooked my own food and whatever. Like that stuff they were serving, it's just all processed sugar and fat. Like it was just revolting. 
So I didn't eat. They wanted to charge me for water. And I said, you know, I'm not eating. I've asked you for two litres of water a day because I'm water fasting. <laughs> they said, oh, yes, but you have to pay for it. By about day three, I'd worked out that the mental health nurses were the, the only way to play the system. If they said, Kerry needs two litres of water a day, Kerry gets two litres of water a day. Kerry needs an extra blanket, she gets an extra blanket. If she needs a walk outside, she gets one. I never asked for one, but, um, you know, whatever they say would would happen. Um, and there was one nurse there, bless her. Like I sent her some flowers. She was so good to me the first week I was there. She really saved my bacon that week. You know, she was just lovely. And, you know, she said to me one day, you know, I was often on the phone in tears with her, and um, she said, look, is there anything else that you can think of that would, you know, just help make you stay more bearable? And I said, look, never mind me dreaming up things. I said, I know you've got a list. Let's just run through the list. So she ran through her whole list of everything that I could possibly have. <laughs> you know, I, I ordered some food in from outside. I eventually found a company who made some pre-prepared um, healthy meals and was able to get them delivered by about day eight. Yeah, so that she said, and the nurse said to me, she said, well, how are you going to eat those? And I said, well, I, I do smuggle in my own knife and fork so you know I've got cutlery <laughs> she said well how are you going to heat them up because they weren't giving microwaves except to nursing mothers to heat milk was the rule <laughs> and I said well to be honest I'm prepared to eat them cold if I have to but otherwise I'm going to write a request for a microwave and I wrote this vile like sarcastic vile request for a microwave they never even replied to my request I just opened the door one day and there was a microwave out there so at least I could, you know, heat the meals, which is something. There is an element of, like, we seek to control, you know, whatever small things we can. I, I was trying to control my own internal space, just try and manage that. But I, you know, I remember days where I was wrapping my fist in, a, in the blanket. I had to turn the heating off, so I was always wrapped in a blanket because <laughs> it was so cold in there in May. But, yeah, I, was, I would punch the window. Punching the window with a blanket wrapped around your fist is, is quite satisfying. It makes, like, a, quite a nice noise. Well, yeah, I was never going to pay, and that seems to have... They don't call me anymore. I got a few phone calls about the outstanding debt. But I think if, if you ask me, I don't know for sure, but it feels like the government's already sold that debt to um, a collection agency and the people who are calling, like, don't really... They're not really invested in trying to collect it. Getting back to hotel quarantine and the fee, that was introduced at the same time as the international flight caps. Personally, my theory is that this was kind of one of Morrison's uh, schemes, which served as a disincentive all up to stop us coming home. I mean, it was such a, it was such an expense and such a waste, you know, like an expense for them to run. And the amount of like just rubbish that went out of everybody's rooms, like straight to landfill, like all this plastic. And it was just um, criminal, frankly. And there was nothing I could do to prevent any of that, you know. Hypocrisy around hotel quarantine was this. Perfectly healthy people who had come home from overseas were locked up in a hotel for 14 days and charged for it, while COVID-positive people in the general community were allowed to self-isolate at home. And these people were receiving pandemic payments from the government. No wonder Australians weren't pushing back on our behalf. Like when I came through 
there were plenty of cases in Melbourne. In fact, so many cases that when I when I left, it, it was in the middle of another lockdown that had been called. So I couldn't even get picked up from the hotel. You know, I just got a cab home at midnight. I checked out at midnight and, you know, came home to an empty house. Did you have your goods and personal effects there by then? No, they would have, the main ones still would have been on the water but I've got so much stuff that I could still live here you know I'd left a bunch of clothes and whatever furniture and stuff here so you know it was livable and bless my dear girlfriend she'd got the keys and come and cleaned it and changed the sheets on the bed and yeah I was glad to be out of hotel quarantine obviously circumstances and my mindset hadn't changed hadn't changed much and I realized um, I think while I was in quarantine like I'd booked a doctor's appointment you know so I went and saw my doctor and just got offered you know some antidepressants, some sleeping tablets and um, about a 10-week wait for a psychologist. <laughs> you know, I couldn't sleep for more than 45 minutes at a time. Like I was just just on alert. Like that's, you know, a mild case of PTSD. Not sleeping, really, really aggressive, like really angry. Like I was, I was looking for fights actually. Like and anywhere I had to go, like I would sort of pre-prepare of like what argument could I get in you know what can we fight about <laughs> you know what might happen that that I need to be ready for kind of thing and I think if someone had offered me a physical fight um during that time I'd have had a crack at a physical fight like I was that is trauma like it helps me realize like you know particularly how men or soldiers or people have gone through dreadful violence or something like that aggression comes out in physical violence because I could feel it. All you're doing is is trying to channel that aggression and that anger into into something you know tangible like. So I was watching really I was watching really violent movies like if I could find a movie with just two guys smacking the crap out of each other I was happy <laughs> I was getting some pleasure or and, and listening to really heavy music like it was quite you know things were quite dark way heavier than I would usually listen to I had a couple of psychologist appointments but I realized that wasn't really my my bag I said oh you better save those appointments for the people who really need them <laughs> But in March 2021, I actually went to my GP and thought, I really need to get some counselling because I'm not dealing with this well either. And she was just so horrible to me that I just never went back. She basically said, you know, well, you're home now, suck it up, suck up the anger, just deal with it basically. And I thought, I can't go back for my referral. So I never actually went. But it took me a long, long time to stop being angry and rebellious. And I think that's the thing. No one understands unless they've been through it themselves. People were led to believe that, you know, anyone who was outside of Australia was just out on holidays and they'd had more than enough time to get themselves back in. Yeah, there's no empathy. Like, Everyone's circumstances were just so different, weren't they? Like, you know, just for all different reasons, but, you know, it just made things difficult. interesting that you, what you say about your doctor though because I've also divorced my doctor we've broken up I don't I haven't had a doctor for a while now but um, I, I ended up I ended up booking um, I have a kinesiologist that I um, have seen periodically so I, I had to wait a bit for an appointment um, with him but he was able to shut down that PTSD calm things down a bit like just with two appointments I remember being on the table saying you know, this um, the way I feel now, like I feel quite powerful, like I feel invincible. Do you think you could just leave a little bit of it? Because it feels really good. 
Now, I was doing things like I would never cross at the pedestrian crossings. I would just cross the road where I wanted, when I wanted. I was stepping off the curbs. Like if I had right of way, I would just step off and make the car stop. Like it was so somewhat reckless, to be, to be honest. You take back whatever, whatever power you have. I've had to learn more about, um, you know, in the last couple of years, more about politics than I ever wanted to know, more about, you know, legal rights in terms of, um, you know, I haven't been able to wear a mask. No one would write me an exemption. But, you know, I'm not having any more things cut off my face from wearing masks. I had to understand my my rights there and, like, you know, argue at certain at certain places. I've had, you know, a couple of stand-up arguments um, at places. One was the ANZ Bank, but, you know, they wouldn't let me in without a mask. I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> so then it was on. And you think, you know, four or five years ago, if you went into a bank with a, a mask or a helmet, you'd be immediately a, um, a prime suspect for a bank robbery. With the mainstream media banging the government's drum and most politicians bowing to the dominant narrative, we found ourselves seeking alternative viewpoints with media and politicians we would not have aligned with pre-COVID. When I moved to Singapore, I didn't take my TV and I didn't buy a TV there. So I kind of disconnected myself from that sound of TV and I now I can't listen to TV anymore. I got rid of my TV. <laughs> Just And commercial radio is the same now. There's a... There's a sound that goes with it that I just, I don't want in my life. It is a bit like I find it just really affects my mind. You, you know, you, when you haven't had it for a long time, like you, it's, it's really obvious what it's doing, like and how it impacts your state of mind. I, I definitely found um, things to listen to and people to follow that I just felt resonated, like what felt like truth for me. And so that's definitely, you know, I'm not aligned with family and friends and whatever. So that is kind of taken its toll as well. Um, it took me a long time because I was so angry. It took me a long time to realise I have to be a little bit careful about, you know, what I choose to say and who I choose to say it to. Um, you know, otherwise it just makes a mess, frankly. Like. And, and just everybody's circumstances were different. You know, the lockdowns weren't equal for everybody. And so just for me, it was this just this lack of empathy. Like not everybody could work. Like there's people who, you know, were on the brink of losing their home or did lose their home, you know, who, who will never financially um, recover you know, it was a bit of sort of survivor's guilt as well because I was able to keep working, you know, remotely that whole time, both in Singapore and here. It just seems unfair. You know, my closest friends, like, not able to work at all, fell outside of the, you know, government's rules for some compensation and just all but lost the house. The media referred to us as returning travellers, so the general Australian population thought that we had been overseas holidaying. Political leaders didn't correct this view because it suited their agenda. It definitely was, um, you know, a way to further, like, separate people, you know, to divide families and divide relationships and make you feel like you're 
you know, somehow less or that you're alone going going through whatever we were going through. Um, I think that was that was very deliberate, you know. You know, during quarantine, I think joined a few other Facebook groups and connected with some people who were, you know, in the hotels or in the same hotel as me at the same time and was just offering some assistance as to how to break the right rules. So how are you doing now? Are you okay? Um, I think so, yeah, just um, a lot better, a lot better. But, you know, I feel like maybe it's not just me, but maybe it's sort of globally, we are in the middle of like some some transition into something else. And so there's been this, you know, the whole of this year even has felt like a bit of a, like we're just waiting. <laughs> like it's just pending like how things are going to, to pan out. So, I mean, I didn't work for the first seven months of this year. Like I was, that project wound up. I did another few months work for somebody else. Um, and then I just took seven months off. I was so burnt out and, you know, ruined. <laughs> so I, I started work again in, in August. Maybe that'll run through till maybe April. Um, and then I'll, I'll rethink what I want to do. I'm just not sure whether I want to keep doing this kind of work. Like I, I work for, as a contractor for sort of some fairly big organisations, like sort of medium to large organisations in the IT space. And I don't know whether that's how I want to contribute my gifts to the world. <laughs> So I'll, I'll see how that pans out this year. So what, what is the message that you would like to send to the Australian government and Australians generally about all this? Well, I, I mean, I like to think that it could never happen again, but, it, you know, that legislation still exists and, you know, all of the controls are still there, so... I imagine if if the right circumstances arose, they'd have another crack at it. But it's left me with a, I never had much of a nice taste for politics anyway, but I have a real distaste for all politics, frankly, for all authority. I just, I've never liked being told what to do, but I like it even less now. Like I, I won't stand for it. And I'm, having been in Singapore where they, you know, everything is digitised, their processes are very tight, they have a process for everything and it's very well organized it drives me mental now to come back here and just see how how poor a process can be made you you know you know I said for a long time you know maybe I'll have to leave Victoria but actually not sure that there's anywhere else in Australia that is going to be much better like if, if things really turn bad like will it make much difference where I am The Never Forget What They Did podcast tells our stories because what was done to us should never be forgotten. Music by Les FM on Pixabay. Our stories are released every week on a Sunday. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on dianelee.com.au forward slash never forget.